You and I know that making smart financial decisions can be challenging. But in the 21st century, financial freedom is no longer just for the 1% wealthy. It is for you and me. The question is, how do we find time, avoid making painful mistakes, and find the best resources to help us reach our financial goals? Join me on my journey helping busy families figure out how they can gain financial confidence and clarity, get actionable tips, and learn from the best experts on how to stop trading time for money. It is now the time you started living your best financial life. My name is Anna Shurgunina, and welcome to the Money Boss Podcast. Hey, Money Bosses, are you ready to get your financial life in order? Once and for all, as soon as possible? Are you tired of living paycheck to paycheck? Do you often lose track of how much money you have to spend? Do you want to get your financial life together, but just don't quite know how? I am with you. I've been there. I've struggled through all of these. And I know you owe it to yourself. You owe it to yourself to get better. So why do you continue to struggle? I know you can get your own money in order. It took me years to figure out. It took me years of pain, struggle, frustration, anger. But you don't have to go through all of that. You don't even have to get a financial planning degree like I did in order to be successful. Allow me to present to you my Money Flow System, a free playbook of how you can automate your finances, even if you hate budgeting. After you download this free playbook, you will never have to worry about budgeting and who likes that budgeting thing anyway. You will stop accumulating debt and create a bulletproof plan of how to quickly pay it off. You will be able to pinpoint exactly what your income and expenses are. You will never have to miss a single bill again. And you will always, always have a solid idea of how much money is in each of your accounts. So head over to money-flowsystem.com to download my free Money Flow Playbook, a blueprint to streamline your finances in less five or five weeks. Guaranteed. Head over to money-flowsystem.com. Many people today choose to focus on their careers and building businesses first, and then they start families and get together and, and marry and, and so forth. I was actually one of those people. Even though Yuri and I got married early in our 20s, we're still waited to have kids. Today, I want to explore on my conversation with Nancy Liu how and what she did successfully in having a conversation with her significant other about a prenup, right? Both of them coming together and making uh, substantial money and building big businesses. What foundation did they lay together as they got married? And how to be okay to have these conversations as well as what an investment portfolio looks like of a serial entrepreneur like Nancy. Nancy is the co-founder and CEO of Blaze Technology, one of the fastest growing platforms that enables teams to build software and web applications without having to write a code. She was named Forbes 30 Under 40 in the Fortune magazine, top 10 women entrepreneurs to watch. She's an Emmy-winning TV producer and a partner at X Factor Ventures, which has 
invested in 85 women-founded startups. Please join our conversation. Hey, Money Bosses. Welcome back. And I am excited for our guest today. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So cool. So we are talking about personal finances of a serial entrepreneur and all lessons learned, the good lessons, the bad lessons, and everything in between. So um, I think it would be fair for us to open up, and I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and how you ended up where you are today, and of course, with the twist of a, a personal finance. So why don't we start with that? That sounds great. So tell so tell us about how... Um, what what would, I guess the a better question would be what would be a first memory of you as a child kind of starting to understand or remember um, or even hearing from your parents or whoever um, some ideas or concepts of, about personal finances? Yes, I'm grateful. My parents were always so upfront with me, even when I was very young, about our personal finances. And I think that's because I came here with my parents as immigrants. We had no money at all. And so we were constantly talking about money, about how much, even uh, at the time, it was they had friends who were also immigrants who would need to borrow you know, $100 from us just to be able to open a bank account. I remember that. I remember my parents saying, oh, let's you know go buy CDs. And it was like the opportunity for them to go buy a CD where I think it was like a thousand dollars for them to be able to buy like one CD. That was a really big milestone. Um, and so it was all about talking about coupons, saving, budgeting. Uh, and so as long as I can remember, my parents were talking about finance and I was exposed to it. That's awesome. I also come from an immigrant family and very different uh, where finances were not discussed um, I don't know why, but maybe that's just my family, <laughs> although you hear that from a lot, a lot of other people. Um, but one concept which I think or life skill that you probably would agree was really vivid for me is like as an immigrant, right? Wherever you go, it's like hard work. And that's what my my parents were focused on, right? We need to provide for, for our kids. I have a younger brother. And so we're going to show as an example of, you know, what it takes to earn a living and, you know, do the, you know, do the hard work. So I definitely got that part <laughs> as I started. So, so for you, um, seeing your parents and being involved in conversations, um, you know, where did you get your idea of, you know, possibly owning your own business um, to begin with? I think that started much later on when I was growing up, the idea of starting your own company was just so foreign to me. It was like, how, how do you even do that? That seems impossible. So for my parents, they worked uh, as teachers and then as engineers. My mom, I remember she would work multiple jobs. Uh, she would go to school during the day. She'd go work as a waitress at night. My dad, same thing, had multiple jobs and it was very much salary based. Uh, and as I got older and started making my own money, it was sort of like, okay, there is the, you know, the hourly, then there's a the salary, but where you can really generate wealth is if you just do that, it's going to be really, really hard to make a ton of money. You can mm -hmm. do the salaries to make a, you know, steady living, but to generate oversized amounts of wealth, it is a very different approach. It is investing. Uh, and so again, going back to the original question, which is starting a business, None of that. That was really not in my vocabulary until uh, 
probably in college when I was just building stuff, apps, websites for fun. Before I ever started a successful software company, it was just building websites and apps for people and monetizing that to help pay for college. So college was really where I feel like I thought, okay, um, I'm just kind of building these projects on the side uh, for fun and to make money was my hobby. And I didn't think that necessarily it would be this full-time job until, you know, I sort of accidentally my senior year really started my first company, which was a biotech company. Um, and it kind of just took off from there. Uh, but the early days, very minimal exposure to the idea of starting a business or entrepreneurship. I think for both maybe your generation after us, right? Like the millennial generation, I'm kind of like on the, the higher end of the millennial generation. So like, I think same for me, right? Idea of owning a business came a little bit later, right? Not at like at the beginning, but I can see like generation that's coming after us. Uh, I mean, the idea of having a side hustle or earning money early on is like, that's a thing you do. So yeah, I've, I've had a, I've had a job after school. I, you know, I won't lie about that. <laughs> I wanted to make money because, you know, um, to all kinds of things, but the idea of like owning your own thing is, is very different. So now, when when you're exposed so early, right, in your life to um, opportunities to make money, right, a lot of other challenges come with it. And so I love my my job, right, because I get to talk about what do you do on that side. But share with us how how did you apply, you know, what you learned from your family, from your parents, into the you know aspect of you know starting you know to run your own business, and then because businesses, especially when you just start out, it's like there's such a big correlation with your personal money. Um, so it's a struggle. So share with us what you did. Absolutely. Um, so when I was in college, it was, and just growing up, I was always constantly saving money, constantly thinking about budget, making sure my cash in never uh, was going to be under my cash out. Uh, and so mm -hmm. that concept, it's, it's kind of funny because I'm in the world of tech startups where mm -hmm. That is a very foreign concept, maybe to some founders where it's always like, just, you know, bring in more investments. You're making very little money. Maybe you're not making money for years and years. And then you're, but you're spending, you know, millions and millions of dollars each year. But that was a very different approach than how I was raised. I think that actually really helped me in my first company, um, which, uh, you know, grew to be one of the largest companies in our industry. And it started because in the early days, I literally did not take a salary. I actually, uh, all I did was the company paid for basically housing and living expenses. Um, now, you know, in terms of being able to do that as a startup nowadays, it's very tricky unless you have all your founders bought in to do this. But that's what we did because we wanted to spend as little money as possible. And as we had sales growth, then we're like, okay, we can hire somebody else and then hire somebody else. So we really scaled with the cash inflows of the business. And then at the time too, we raised venture capital money. Now, not every business is able to do that. Mm -hmm. We were in a specific area with building a software company where it could be very scalable. So it fit the criteria of venture capital firms and venture capital investors. And so we were able to raise money there. But again, I always took almost no money at all. And I still just had my savings from all the odd jobs I did throughout college. And some of them paid very well. I had an internship at Goldman Sachs that paid better than the salaries that my parents make. And so that I saved and 
And by save, I mean invest. It's always, I never just have cash sitting in a bank account. I always want to make sure that while I'm sleeping, it's doing work and it's generating more money. And so early on, uh, the first thing I did, and I think I had some very good just financial advice from even friends that were my age that were just really finance savvy. It's it's that, hey, just go and put it in an index fund. You don't have time mm-hmm. to go analyze stocks unless you have you know, in-depth knowledge or some special unique view on a company. There are hedge funds and most of them do not outperform index funds. And so mm-hmm. I just said, all right, I'm just going to put my money in index funds. So for me, it was just uh, uh, SPY or VU. Um, those are all great options. I did SPY because it was easy to buy on the account that I had. Um, and that's where I put all my money. And I started doing that since 2008, basically when I started college. Uh, and so it's obviously done very, very well. Um, one of the best times to start putting money into the stock market happened to be 2008 because it was like the lowest uh, mm-hmm. prices for these index funds. So uh, I, I just immediately started doing that. And so any kind of amount of money that I had, I would just put in there while I'm building my business. Uh, and for my business, it was, that's the big risk. That's the one where right now I'm not generating income. It's an investment. That is the, the biggest investment. Instead of taking a salary at a company, right? I am instead taking almost no salary, but that investment, that equity I own in my company, I hope that in the future, in X number of years, it will be magnitudes greater than if I had taken a salary job. So, uh, and I actually really thought about that when I was in college, when I was starting out, I was like, all right, do I want to go? I had uh, full-time offers at top investment banks. And it's, do I go that route where you make great income, like your first year out of college, or is it, I take zero income and pursue the potential, the opportunity years down the road to maybe make a lot more. Um, And for me, because I grew up with nothing, I was not uncomfortable to go the route where I could take this chance and potentially it could turn out uh, to be a big winner. So I went down that route. I think you have um, a lot of awesome foundational concepts that propelled you into taking those steps, right? Like you said, you, you've you've had nothing to lose as a child, right? Or you, your family didn't have much to show for, but they worked really hard. And so that alone, right? Those foundational pieces in your head are like, I can do that now. I can take all the risk. And so I'm I'm trying to like contrast and compare because in the society we live today, right? Like this idea of, graduating from college, right? Or getting a job is so enticing because then you can start enjoying, you know, life now, or you can have, you know, a nice apartment or, you know, you can save to buy a house versus what you did is postpone, right? This instant gratification um, of things and experiences for a much greater reward down the road. So it's a, it's a very different approach. Um, what we're for seeing. several years, I had no idea if this was the right path because all my friends took fancy jobs. They got nice apartments. Whereas for me, I'm living in a startup house. The the first apartment I got uh, when we started our company, one bedroom, one bathroom apartment, no air conditioning, top floor of an apartment building in Los Angeles. And Mm -hmm. it was myself and four guys that was sharing this tiny, tiny apartment. I slept on an air mattress And it's the, all right, you're going to make these sacrifices, just not knowing. So I always say when people 
Um, you don't want to go to start that business and maybe don't have a ton of money behind them. It's the, how much are you willing to sacrifice and not know, not know if it's going to work out because you can work so hard at a business and it can still fail. And so uh, that looking back, I'm like, that was kind of a crazy decision. In fact, I, I have a younger sister who's a junior in college mm-hmm. and she wants to be you know, an entrepreneur. I actually guide her away from that. <laughs> because it's so it's so risky because I I see the number of companies that fail, um, but of course she only sees the successes, the upside. Yeah, so you have very you have a lot more insight as to what it what it takes. But yeah, and so if I think a little further, right, like at some point um, in being on this path, on this path of entrepreneurship, and it's not one year, it could be years that you're doing this, you know, for um, at some point, you know, you may to start to bring somebody else into your life, right? You may want to get married and have a family. So how do you like bringing all of this with you, right? Because it, it, everything about your finances and what you do comes into that and starting to merge things together is very challenging. So um, my husband and I got married very young, right? Like right out of college, but we didn't start family until later, just because we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do and, you know, what, you know, what was the right path in terms of business ownership and all of that together. So I feel like my situation is somewhat unique because we kind of like grew together, but what happens, you know, if you meet somebody and you're like, well, I am in the middle of this kind of project, <laughs> it take me years, or maybe you are on the other end of this project and you have made substantial uh, income and wealth. So yeah, how do you start to like introduce this into the relationship uh, if you have one? Absolutely. So um, I had a friend who described different types of marriages in two different ways and I really loved it. Mm -hmm. There's the startup marriages where you meet when you're really young and neither of you have a lot of assets or anything and Mm -hmm. you grow together. That's the startup marriage. And then you have the marriages that are the mergers and acquisitions where you already have the assets, you're two established companies already, and you're merging assets together. So for my husband and I, which we got married last year, we were the merger, the Mm M&A. So I met him when I was 29. And at that point in my 20s, I had already made my first $10 million uh, and he was in his thirties. He was 35. When I met him, he already had an established career and he had started a successful hedge fund in the past. And so it was very much merging of assets at the time I had actually, I was still running my company. My last company was not acquired yet. And, uh, and so anytime I knew that if I married him, uh, and my company was acquired after any of the appreciation from the point that we married to when the company would sell, right? He would actually, you know, be part of that, which is, you know, some people are totally fine with that. But for me, I always wanted to, and I think he really wanted to make sure that, you know, he, he is like, I've got my own assets. Hey, I don't want to, you know, just because I'm your husband, I got Mm -hmm. to have, you know, a piece of your company or whatnot. And so early on in dating, we just talked about, would we ever do a prenup? And he was like, yeah, I'd always plan on doing a prenup. And even when I was starting my company, when I had very little assets, I always said, you know what, I would do a prenup because I just want to make sure any of the people that own equity in my company are people inside of the company that are the operators, et cetera. Um, because let's see, you know, I always, I like to plan for if something happens. Of course I go into a marriage thinking it's going to last forever, but I want to always be prepared. And I think it's also has been really good and healthy for a relationship 
because it's never, uh, I never feel like, um, and I'm the, the uh, he again does really well for himself, but I had when we got married, you know, just more assets than him. So I never wanted to feel that, hey, like he could just benefit, like he could, we could be married for, you know, just a couple of years. And then he, if we ever divorced, he would walk away with a bunch of uh, mm-hmm. holdings in any of the companies I start. And I have a lot of different companies and a lot of different investments. And so to keep it clean, we said, yes, let's do a prenup. Mm-hmm. So it was, it seems like it was a lot easier conversation. Somehow it's, it's it's a sensitive topic right to bring up in a relationship but it makes it makes a whole lot of sense as, as to how you described it describing it so how did you guys go about it um from from the point of like okay this seems like a great idea how do we do this absolutely so now us agreeing to have a prenup that was the easiest part so <laughs> we were like okay. on the same page but let me tell you and i've talked to a lot of friends about this a lot of my friends who uh, most of the time the generals are are, are flipped with my friends. They're uh, men and they're the CEOs and their spouses are ones where they're, uh, they earn less or they have uh, fewer assets. And, um, and so it was a little bit different in my situation because I know that if I have kids, I will be the mother of kids. And it's, so it's a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm sharing it from like a woman's perspective of if I'm the person that owns most of the assets, um, this is my approach. And it would be very different. I think if it was the other way around and how I would negotiate. Right. Um, so, uh, for all of my friends, even as much as they love, uh, their spouses and how easy it was to get into the position to say, yes, let's do a prenup. That negotiation of a prenup is so difficult still. And so hard. I thought going into it because both of us were like, yeah, we're going to do a prenup. Absolutely. I thought it was going to be an easy conversation. It's not. It is so difficult. You get upset at each other. Uh, there, it's a true test of trust with one another and compromise. So I went and be like, "Hey, our prenup, uh, we're going to just completely have separate assets, 100%. Like anything that's mine is mine. Anything is yours is yours. It's as if we're not married." So that was my approach, and. My husband, I thought he was on board. I, was, I thought that's sort of what I agree. He was like, well, what's the point of that being married if we don't have anything shared? And so he really wanted to have some community assets uh, mm-hmm. together. And so uh, how we started the process was um, I got recommended some lawyers and he got recommended some lawyers. And it's a requirement um, that you have separate lawyers, separate representation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he... Uh, paid for his own lawyer, but there are sometimes, you know, with, with prenups where uh, the higher earner will pay for the uh, lawyer that represents their spouse. Uh, but in this situation, he had a lawyer, I had a lawyer that was recommended uh, to us. And I always just asked, you know, people who had a great experience with somebody, I really liked uh, the lawyer that I worked with um, and he liked the lawyer he worked with. And so it's coming up with just the, the basics. I think that's, you know, because we don't want to charge up. We don't want to spend tons and tons of lawyer dollars. And it's, uh, it's not necessarily a cheap process. Um, mm-hmm. I think each side can expect if you don't have everything nailed down. I, I think we were on the lower side. 
you know, call it about $10,000 per side um, mm -hmm. that you will be spending at least uh, for, and ours prenup was really, really basic. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, that's, that's really how much we spent. Uh, and we tried to do a lot of the work beforehand to just decide. Uh, the lawyers gave us a questionnaire of basically here are all the different considerations. And then uh, in the process too, you are required to list out all of your assets, all assets and all liabilities of everything. And so that for me included everything from all my real estate holdings, any kind of funds that I was invested in, my companies, uh, even you know my cars, my jewelry, all of that. Uh, you you list it all out and you say, here's you know the general assets. And then you go, you talk about things like, do you want to include talking about who's responsible for what expenses? So we actually chose not to uh, do talk about any expenses at all. For our prenup, all we decided is, hey, if we ever start a company or do anything, everything is separate, but we have one joint account. And this is joint account every single year, both of us, whatever we make in that year, we will contribute 10% into this joint account. And so this was uh, actually his idea because remember, I just wanted everything uh, separate. He proposed this because he said, you know, I want to grow something together. And it took a little bit of time for me to come around that because I was like, well, I'm always going to be contributing more into, you know, this account. Um, and so I didn't like that. Um, but for his, what he was saying, he's like, this is the investment that we make together. And there are situations and you know what, uh, you never know. But it is a situation where he's done this past year really, really well with his business and that he's actually going to be because it's all based on that year. Mm. Um, it's not based on total assets, it's just based on how much you made that year. Mm -hmm. He's actually going to be contributing more than me uh, this year and potentially next year as well. And so even though I thought that uh, when I first negotiated, it's like, oh, I'm always going to be putting in more. It actually turned around, which is pretty awesome. And it's great. Obviously, I'm very, very happy about it. And he is happy about it too. Um, uh, so that's what we did. So we only decided kind of these big elements, which is one, everything is separate. If I start a company um, and I don't add his name onto it, it's it's not community property at all. We have this 10% that we all contribute and then expenses, we said, we don't want to talk about that in our prenup. You can choose to talk about it in the prenup, but we chose not to. Uh, and then there are things like spousal support. If ever you get divorced, are you going to ask for spousal support? Both of us said, no, we're going to forego spousal support. Mm -hmm. Those are some of the, the big elements. And yeah. it's a tough conversation. It is for sure a tough conversation because, yeah, it's like... It, it's, I can only imagine because I, as you described, was on a startup marriage. Um, so you have to have those conversations. There was nothing to share. You know, we just had to build it together. So how, um, I'm just curious, um, because you said that discussing expenses, right? And how do you live your life? We mostly talked about assets, right? Things that you're working on or investments that you're making and whatnot. But what about day-to-day -day life? Like you guys opted out of that conversation, but since we're talking about finances and so how, just, you know, describe how do you guys run your household? Uh, yeah, together. absolutely. Um, and so this was part of the, and by the way, this prenup conversation, I know I just sort of boiled it down to, you know, a couple of minutes. It was a call it six and a half month process. 
Wow. Mm -hmm. It took to happen towards the end. We were rushing actually, because we wanted to have our wedding on eight, eight, August eight. And you need to have your prenup signed and done. It's like, at least, at least in California, I think something like 10 days or two weeks or something, uh, before you have the wedding. And so we were rushing to meet that deadline and to finalize everything. We went through multiple, uh, drafts, um, and, the expenses thing we thought about it. And then we're like, if we get into expense, it's just like a whole can of worms. But uh, in the negotiation piece, part of the reason he wanted to do this joint account too, is because he's like, the lifestyle you live is one that is really different than what I had before. Um, he is somebody who is much more frugal than me. Mm-hmm. He is like very, very basic and I adore him and I really appreciate him uh, for that. Whereas I am the one where I love bringing my friends to fancy vacations. I love flying my uh, family out on first class to international vacation, all of, all of these kinds of things. Um, I uh, give a lot to nonprofits. I said, I spend a significant amount of money. I make giving it to, to charities that I really care about. And so he said, you know, uh, I would not have these high expenses because we would split a lot of things. He was like, these vacations are flying first class. I would not choose to do that myself. I would just pick to fly economy, but with you, mm-hmm. you know, flying business instead. And so he said, you know, for this joint account at the time when it was that it was expected that I would contribute more, he was like, well, part of it too, is I wouldn't have all these high expenses if it wasn't, you know, being, being with you. And so I sort of understood, okay, got it. So now going into the marriage, so he moved in with me uh, to my home and so he'll pay. uh, So I take care of, because I had already owned the home uh, fully outright, um, uh, I, you know, I cover all the property taxes, et cetera, but he'll contribute to paying for, um, the water bill, electricity, utilities, mm-hmm. gardener, uh, pool person. Um, and then when it comes to, uh, the day-to-day expenses, vacations, we just sort of kind of go back and forth where it's the, I'll pay for some of these vacations. And then he, uh, will pay for some other vacations fully. And, uh, it is very much just, uh, kind of ad hoc. Mm-hmm. And, and you guys, yeah, it's very interesting how you describe in it. Um, because I, and again, I've, I've had a few clients who had prenuptial agreements and in, which included this kind of a breakdown, because I think people get more caught up in this day-to-day minutia, right. Or could get more upset, but you guys chose to like, okay, we're going to be more free at will with, with how this works. And um, so how about that, like the joint account that you guys have that contributes to your overall, like daily expenses or what is that? That's just an investment. That's just investment. And we just say this one, we grow and we have very similar investment philosophy. So that's Mm. really good. Like we uh, like for our joint account, it's the, Hey, let's put it just right now in treasuries. Let's do safe, safe assets, because on the side in our own personal accounts, we'll do assets that are, or investments that are riskier, but could potentially generate higher return. Uh, but for the joint one, we are like, Hey, you know, let's, let's do this as sort of the safe stuff, you know, buying combination of VU and treasuries. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is very, uh, very appropriate for the time being, right? <laughs> in in the environment we are in with all kinds of stuff happening. So right. let's talk a little bit about like the diversification, because this is this is a little bit more advanced, but very much necessary conversation as two parties coming into like this discussion, right, could be very different in how much risk they're willing to take. You, at least to me, right, and I'm more assessing it from like a financial planner view, like, okay, she's very aggressive. Um, just, you know, what you've done with, with your businesses and the risks you've taken. Um, but does that necessarily mean that's how your money invests it? So how, um, yeah, how have you guys decided and agreed um, on what would be a right strategy and, you know, the types of investments? Because maybe perhaps you've taken a lot of risk in your businesses already. That's, that's exactly right. Because I take so much risk on my business. So uh, my last company we sold, we had a very successful uh, exit. Uh, and then for the new company, I just started a new startup last year with my same co-founder who started Blaze.Tech. And so now I'm back in uh, the early startup days again, where we're taking basically no salary and we're mm -hmm. just investing in it. We are equity owners in the business. Um, and we want to minimize spending as much as possible. And so again, I'm taking minimal salary there. And instead, that's a lot of risk for the hope again, that in the future, it's going to have a big, you know, successful exit. And so because of that, all of my call it liquid or semi-liquid assets, all of my investments, things that are cash, or I converted from cash into something else, those are much more uh, I would call lower risk profile because of that, because I take so much risk already and uh, what I'm, you know, the, the wealth that I'm generating. My other side is very safe stuff. Lots of, you know, just again, public uh, funds, in, index funds, uh, mm -hmm. treasuries, bond funds, um, although those aren't, you know, fantastic these days, um, real estate, uh -huh. uh, and some alternative assets like investing in private equity uh, funds. So it's very, very different uh, risk profile than what my day to day is. Now, on the other side, my husband, he now serves as uh, advisor and external CFO for a lot of different companies. And so mm -hmm. where he makes most of his money is directly in cash upfront from the companies. And so he's generating a lot of cash from his call it day job. And so because of that, he on his uh, investment, um, his personal investments, he still does uh, plenty of the just holding index funds, but he'll take a little bit more risky strategy. Like he sometimes likes to go trade futures. Um, mm -hmm. He likes to uh, go and buy individual stocks course he has a background in that he's done that successfully so he's going to take a little bit more risk on his personal investments because his day job is generating a lot of cash yeah make it makes sense it's kind of a balancing all the angles um from you know depending on what you know what else is happening now you mentioned which is something that i'm very intrigued and maybe we can think of it as investment but you've participated in a, in a tv show as an investor and so Talk a little bit more about that because it's not a typical investment yeah. that you know you can kind oh, of buy. It, it, <laughs> that's that's right. So um, I have been a co-producer investor in a couple of TV shows, 
And that is just like fun, passion. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are, I would call high risk and low return. <laughs> so it's probably the opposite of any kind of investment you ever want to make, right? You want to make the investment where it's high risk, but high return. Um, TV shows I would generally classify is not that, but it's a lot of fun. And I almost think of it sometimes as just supporting the arts, supporting a story or a group of people, storytellers that you care about, you want to make an impact on society, culture. And so that's an avenue for me to do that. So I almost think of some of these investments as, you know, call it a donation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I don't expect to generate a return. Now, some of them have generated returns, most of them have not, but it's okay. These are ones where, um, you know, for a lot of them, it kind of starts at 100K for you to go be a co-producer for an independent TV show. And I think of that as you have to be willing to just lose it all. And I go into each of these expecting that, but knowing that my outcome is that we create some amazing content, um, you know, obviously won an Emmy from one of the shows. And so those are great things. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was really just really supporting that team and being able to tell a great story. Passion. Yes. I actually have a client who does similar things. He produces operas. He writes them. I think, I think it's the right that's how you describe it. But he's he writes the operas and he's been doing it all his life. And actually, I think one of his latest projects is going to run this August. So that's very exciting, right? Also like a complete passion project that was like, and this client is in his like late 70s. So this is <laughs> this is the kind of investment, if you view it as that, um, how long, you know, it could actually take um, to create some return for you. So yeah, it's just, I always, you know, when I sit down with clients to look at the portfolio, like some of these things are like, yeah, that's my sort of passion project or a sandbox where I can just like play in it. And it's not impacting uh, my core foundational, you know, stuff that um, I rely on. So it's very cool. I just, I'm, I'm amazed because I just never had anyone uh, kind of do that <laughs> just yeah, yet. It's a, it's a fun thing. I, I really love it. Yeah. I, uh, you know, you get to do things like go on set, you go to watch parties where it's your show um, that is being played. And so, uh, so our, the most recent show I'm involved with the Bay um, it's on Amazon, uh, and it's just really fun when my family gets to go, you know, use their Amazon prime account and watch this TV show. <laughs> That's cool. Which one did you guys win an, uh, an Emmy for? Yeah. The Bay. The, the Bay, Bay is okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to check it out. This is so cool. Okay. Now I can say I've had somebody on my podcast that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> was involved, right? Well, that's, that's what happened. So um, very cool. Now I'd love to learn a little bit about what your company does, because this is your, is it second go around? So you're, or as a startup? Uh, it's, okay. it's, I don't know at what, how many companies now, um, but with my last co-founder, these, this is the second company we've okay. started okay. together. Um, so it's called blaze.tech and we enable people to go build custom software applications and internal tools without needing to know anything about coding or using engineers. So you can use our mm-hmm. platform, leverage our service to go build custom applications. People have built things ranging from inventory management software to HR software to construction management software. Uh, we work with a lot of healthcare companies where there's a lot of applications, internal tools that they need to build, but they don't necessarily have 
a lot of engineers. And so they'll mm -hmm. use a platform like ours, which is everything is visual. It's all drag and drop and being able to build a application. And uh, we started this because it was something that we always wanted to have. I'm actually not uh, a software engineer by training. And so mm. this is something that I was like, hey, if you have somebody who can describe exactly the application they want or software that they want to build, we should empower them to be able to build it. Um, and mm -hmm. so when we were deciding after the successful sale of our, sale of our last company, we're like, what should we do next? And all of us, my co-founders and I, we were all still pretty young. I was 30 uh, and my co-founders, um, they're actually married to each other. They're mm -hmm. in their early forties. They have no kids, don't plan on having kids. Their life and passion is building companies. Um, mm -hmm. And so we said, hey, let's now. And it was kind of funny how it was all of my twenties was building my last company. And it really took almost that entire decade to go and build it and then sell it. And I'm like, wow, entering my thirties. Now this is like this new uh, decade where I'm going to be in spending it, investing it in uh blaze. And so uh, I'm, yeah, it, it's been an incredible journey working with uh, my co-founders. I've worked with them for a decade now and mm -hmm. I can't imagine better people to work with. Yeah. It's, it's, I've heard this before um, that it does take a while for most people to, you know, to do something substantial with their first business. But as you kind of have this go around, you know, second time, a third time, supposedly it should take tech you faster. So I don't know, we'll, maybe we'll talk in a few years again, and you'll be sharing a different story, right? Um, yeah, it was, it was so funny because in the last two years, I've been involved in four different M&A transactions. So there was a sale of my mm -hmm. company. I served on a board of another uh, company where we were acquired for $440 million. And then there was another company <laughs> where we were also acquired by another public company. And then finally, there was a company when I started Blaze.Tech, we acquired uh, another startup company. And so in a two-year span, doing four M&A deals uh, was pretty wild. It was a great experience. Obviously, uh, you know, the um, amount of work it takes to get any of these companies. I was just really grateful for one of the companies I was brought on to uh, the board for this company to just help them figure out what that next pathway is. And it was remarkable that we ended up, you know, was able to get acquired within a year. Yeah, no, it's awesome. It's definitely a lot of hard work. So in closing for today, I'd love for you to share maybe a last, you know, tidbit with, with our audience um, you know, from the experience that you've had, um, you know, building companies, really successful companies and, and, and building, you know, uh, starting a marriage and building a relationship that um, you guys weren't afraid to ask the hard questions at the beginning, right? There, there were necessary, but, um, you know, with sending that. Um, so looking back when you were a young, you know, young girl kind of entering all of this, um, what would you tell yourself um, as a young person? learn as much about personal finance as possible and understand how to read financial statements. And this <laughs> is not just for um, individuals, but especially for even entrepreneurs. Uh, you'll be shocked at how many entrepreneurs don't know how to read a balance sheet or PNL or how it you know flows together into cash flow statements. Uh, it's a really, really important, I think, um, topic to understand or subject to understand. And so 
uh, as Jonathan, my husband and I think about, you know, starting a family and kids, I want them to be exposed to personal finance and finance as early as possible. I'm grateful that my parents kind of accidentally did it because of the situation we were in. Uh, but I would really, really emphasize it. And with my younger sister, who's in college right now, she, she's a business major. So she uh, mm -hmm. has a accounting courses, the finance courses, it is just such a powerful tool to have as an individual. It gives you such a leg up and there are many resources people can use, uh, you know, especially if they have a financial planner. I mean, that's a person, that's a great resource to say, Hey, can you just actually explain to me how this works? Um, and understanding the, uh, implications of laws taxes in personal finance and making these decisions. Uh, so in fact, as early as possible, I would have said, hey, six-year-old Nancy, go learn how to read financial statements and understand, you know, money, saving and investing. We talk about saving a lot with kids, yeah. right? Changing that, that conversation to investing can be very powerful. I agree. Very much agree. I wish I've had that, or as you know, as as early as you know, it was possible. But we all kind of have our path. So I'm very grateful that you've uh, you've shared that because I think it's a really really important lesson. So and I have as now I have a four year old son, Liam. That's the concept right that I want to instill in him for sure because um, it it helps it helps to to get that early start. So. Thanks so much for coming on today. How would um, anyone uh, interested in connected with you can do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they can follow me on Twitter. It's Nancy underscore Lou, um, or they can follow uh, our company account, which is at Blaze No Code on Twitter as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nancy. And I will have um, your uh, profile in uh, links in the show notes as well for the recording. So um, they can connect with you. Thank you so much again for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Anna. This was fun. Hey, Money Boss. Thanks for tuning in today. If this episode did help you, then please be sure to share it with someone else you think will benefit from it too. After all, smart financial decisions are for everyone. Uh, so don't be greedy. I hope I can help you even further by sharing with you how thousands of clients I worked with in my career over the last 16 years created their very own successful financial lives on their terms. It's hard for me to do this over an audio, and if you are ready for the next chapter in your life, then be sure to go to MainStreet-Money.com to get your free resource guide to help you begin correcting top six financial mistakes I see people make all the time, such as not having clear financial goals, not having a handle on spending or saving for the future, not knowing how to get rid of all the debts, and of course, not having a clear strategy or plan on how to protect your hard-earned money. Until next time, remember, you are the boss of your money.